we're, we're, we're in the middle of this series. We've reached number five, and um, our, our fifth mark of a healthy church is evangelism. So my question for you, and feel free to shout out, what do you think of first? Let's play word association. What do you think of first when you hear the word evangelism? I went to Costco yesterday to sign up for a Costco card for the church, and the lady said, so your name's Ian Jones, and you're from Rotherham, and she couldn't say the word evangelical. She didn't even know what the word was. Evangelism's like that. Evangelism? Evangelical? What do you think when you think of the word evangelism? Over to you. Have another drink. Spreading the gospel. Good. Telling people about Jesus. Okay, very good. A rowdy church. Well, you're all very good, aren't you? Nothing rowdy about this church. Evangelism. Does it have for you any negative connotations? You've talked a little bit about evangelism as it relates to Christians sharing their faith. Put yourself in the shoes of the man on the street, perhaps. What would people's view of the word evangelism be if they could say it or spell it or know it? Evangelism, do you think people would be positive about the concept of evangelism? No, but I think if someone you know, I think, or they could be someone who's been in the middle of town shouting out. Would they? Okay. You know, both would be not necessarily very favourable. So intrusive, maybe. And okay. What about the word evangelist? Um, I was looking this up on Google. Um, uh, There was a a fellow in America who who went to a recruitment, uh, online recruitment website, and he put in the word evangelist as a search for jobs. The word evangelist. And he, he found 611 jobs for an evangelist. And not one of them was anything to do with a church. You can be an Apple evangelist. You can be a Google evangelist. You can be a Microsoft evangelist. Um, The first 11 in the list actually were from Microsoft. Apparently this is known as being a technology evangelist. And your job will be to enthuse and convert people to Apple technology. Some people hate Apple, don't they? Some people love it. And uh, could you be an Apple evangelist? I think in my generation, uh, when I hear the word evangelist, I, I, I can't help thinking of crackpot televangelists. I don't know whether that's true for some of you who are younger. Well, you, you can go on Sky TV and, and watch um, all sorts of people who would claim to be evangelists, some of whom have made lots of money, some of whom have then gone off the rails morally. I'm sure some of them are a good uh, man as well but uh, when, I, when, I, when I hear the word evangelist I can't help being cynical in some ways about, about that word 
And, and some of we've talked a little bit about, do we have any right to evangelise? Is it just intrusive to talk to other people about what we believe, what, what, what makes that uh, justifiable? I, I think among Christian people, the word evangelism can raise all sorts of um, feelings. If we, if we could show a spectrum of feelings ranging from guilt to confusion and, and anything in between, I think the word evangelism... Uh, can cause all of those responses. Maybe we could um, we could do a vote on some of these statements. I won't ask you to put your hand up, but you just think in your own mind whether you could relate to these statements. I feel I should share my faith, but feel so inadequate and would probably mess it up. I just don't know enough. What about this one? I don't want to offend anyone or for them to think I'm patronising them or that I think that I'm better than them. What about this one? You should never try to tell people how to live. You should just try and live a good life and then answer their questions if they have any. I'm not comfortable trying to tell people they're wrong and I'm right. Is that what evangelism is? Well, this person clearly thought so and thought, that's not for me. Some Christians can think that evangelism is something that the leaders do, like the minister. After all, they're professionals and they know how to do it. Well, they should do, we think. Well, how, how do you feel about this whole subject of evangelism? Inadequate? fearful, or maybe apathetic. Well, we think about what makes a healthy church, and I think um, it is, this, this is a really important mark, I think, of a healthy church. Um, in our series, there, there is another word up there, message, it wasn't meant to be there, that, that, that's my next slide, but it was there all the time, you wonder where we're going to go. I don't know if you've noticed the pattern over the last two or three weeks, we were thinking, first of all, about what the actual message of Christianity is. We, sometimes we call it the gospel, which really means good news. What is the content of the message? Um, last week, we were thinking about, I suppose, the moment of salvation or conversion, the point at which a person comes to believe that message and becomes a Christian. A great change. We talked about that last week. So we're kind of looking at the idea of Christianity from different angles. I suppose this week we're thinking about the bit in between, aren't we? If evangelism is communication, isn't it? How can we communicate the content or the message of Christianity in such a way that people will hear it and respond to it and be converted? That is the aim in the end. So we're thinking about how do we tell other people about the great message that has changed our lives. That's the issue, isn't it, in evangelism. How can I communicate to others what I now have come to know about the gospel? Well, we're going to think about this uh, subject of evangelism. I think the danger is with this, uh, you know, is the, the, there's so many different angles to this. I, I, I thought when I'd finished preparing, there's a whole load of stuff that I haven't even touched on here. Maybe I should ditch that and do something else. But we'd be here all day if we tried to cover everything, wouldn't we? 
So we're going to try and be very simple. We've got a lot to get through, but very simply, four questions. We're going to think about who should do evangelism, how we should do evangelism. We're going to think thirdly, what is evangelism? And four, fourthly, why? What, what would be our motive for our, uh, the reason behind doing evangelism? Okay? So the who, the how, the what, and the why. Simple. Simples. Simples. Okay. Who should evangelise? Number one. Who should do it? Well, when, when we think about the New Testament, we think about the Gospel, particularly in the New Testament, it's clear that there were men, like, like the Apostle Paul, who were amazing and prolific in their preaching the, the Gospel message. Christianity spread in the first century all the way around the Mediterranean and into Europe relatively quickly. Amazing, uh, the spread of Christianity. What, one of the evidences that we have for the reliability of the Bible documents that we have in our hand is exactly that. The fact that it spread so quickly. When, when people talk about, you know, Constantine wrote the Gospels in 300 and something AD, there's masses of evidence that the gospel was already dominating uh, the Roman Empire, even despite the emperors who had fiercely persecuted Christianity. And the, and the, and the gospel documents were proliferated all around the Mediterranean. Many, many um, copies uh, of documents made. And, and, and there were men who were prolific and amazing in their preaching of the gospel message. Many, many people who were converted to Christianity. But is it only people like Paul who should do it? Is it only people who are called professionally to do evangelism who should do it? What about churches today? Is it just the role of the man who uh, gets paid to sit around all week studying the Bible so that he can come and give a talk on a Sunday and uh, do evangelism? Well, I think... um, one of the starting points here is uh, some words of Jesus right at the very end of the gospel. It's really bright, isn't it, today? Can you see that? This is Matthew chapter 28. Um, the very last verses that we have in Matthew's gospel that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. And uh, he gave them what has become known as the Great Commission. And uh, this is what it says. They saw him. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. They are phenomenal words, aren't they? The gospel imperative is rooted in these words of Jesus. In fact, the gospel imperative, God is behind it. God breaks into the human race in the person of Christ. He lives and dies, rose again from the dead. And then he says to his disciples who trust him, now I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. All nations... Not just here, but everywhere. And in a way, we're here 2,000 years later in Rotherham. That gospel, mass, that gospel imperative has rippled out 
across the whole world. So these words to these original disciples of Jesus, um, they certainly apply to them. Do they apply to us? Well, when you read the book of Acts, after the Gospels, the story of the early church in the first century, is it just the leaders who do this or is it everyone? Well, maybe if you've got a Bible, you can turn, to, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Um, if you've got a Red Church Bible, it's on page 1101. Page 1101. Certainly in the early part of the church's life, they enjoyed... Uh, some peace but uh, eventually inevitably persecution breaks out and uh, a man called Stephen is stoned to death and in verse 1 it says uh, Acts chapter 8 on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him but Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off men and women and put them in prison verse 4 those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went now it can't be the apostles because he's already just told us that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and it was the Christian believers who were scattered through Judea and Samaria because of the persecution and those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In other words, the Christian believers who had become Christians in Jerusalem, as they were scattered by persecution, what did they do? They, they, they preached the word wherever they went. They spoke about their faith in Jesus wherever they went. It's an interesting thing that Jesus has said to his disciples, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. To begin with, they didn't do it. And it took a persecution to cause them to do it. Isn't that incredible? Uh, they, they didn't spread until they were persecuted. And when they did, they preached the word wherever they went. Um, we have this uh, man, Stephen, who was not an apostle or a disciple or an elder. He was a deacon. It's a Greek word that means servant. And he was stoned for preaching. All the believers uh, were involved in this process of sharing the message with others. What about um, in Acts chapter 11? If you just turn over the page to chapter 11, um, and we'll read again from verse 19. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's very clear when you read the book of Acts that for sure leaders were involved in preaching the gospel publicly and formally, but all Christian believers were involved in sharing their faith the message, the good news, the gospel with people that they met in their daily lives. So the answer to our first question is who should be involved in evangelism? 
well, all Christian believers should be involved in this business of evangelism. All Christians. So if you're a Christian this morning, that includes you. I think the Bible teaches that. It's not just my job or some other minister's job. It, it is very much our job, but it is something that you also need to be involved in. Second question was how? So, how should we do it? And uh, my first points appeared again. <laughs> so we'll come back to that in a minute. Sorry about the colour scheme. There's a very famous book um, written by a Christian that gently pokes fun at this idea. Um, and it's, it's an American book called The Gospel Blimp. Has anyone ever heard of that? The Gospel Blimp. Do you know what a blimp is? It's an American word. It's a hot air balloon. Sometimes when you're watching golf or something on TV and they have these uh, hot air balloons in the sky that have cameras on them and the, com- you know, the camera will pan up into the sky. Oh, there's the blimp advertising AT&T or whatever the company is. Um, there was a family who lived next door to another family and they were Christians and they were sat on the porch one day and they were talking about how can we share the message of Jesus with our next door neighbours? And as they were talking in the background, they hit on the idea, let's invest in a hot air balloon. A gospel blimp. And it's, it's a parody. And, so, and they think, if we could have a hot air balloon that had a verse from the Bible on it, and then it sailed across the sky, our neighbours would, would then know about Jesus. The obvious irony being, why don't you just go and talk to them? They won't buy it. Um, the gospel blimp. It's an interesting book. It's an old book now. Well, how should we do evangelism? I want to just say three things. These are more to do with attitude, I suppose. <clears throat> and I, you know, I hope these things will relate to us as a church. The first thing I want to say is evangelism involves telling people with honesty that if they repent and believe in Jesus, they will be saved but that it will be costly. And we've seen this in some of the other sessions we've done. The first great need is to be accurate, isn't it, in what we're presenting and not leave things out that are difficult or awkward. Sometimes we, as Christian people, can be tempted to leave out the bad news part of the gospel for fear that it will put people off and it will so any talk of people being sinners or repentance or guilt is completely off limits one American TV preacher put it like this this is a Christian, a preacher I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. It's a Christian TV evangelist. In other words, what he's saying is, what I don't want to do is tell people any bad news. Yet we find in the Bible that 
making people aware of their condition is actually part of sharing the good news of Jesus. In Acts, you find over and over that Peter is breathtakingly honest about human nature, about the people who listen to him. He's not rude or obnoxious. But if, if you don't know what the illness is, how can you know what the medicine should be? That, that's, Peter is very honest as he preaches the good news of Jesus. And the Bible teaches, we've seen, that human nature is estranged from God. And we need to be honest about that and tell people why the gospel sorts that problem out. How can there be any good news if, if, if we're all okay to begin with? So the first thing we need to do is tell people the gospel honestly and not dilute the message of the gospel. And of course we need to do that sensitively. The second thing is a sense of urgency. And this, here's the second point. Tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe they will be saved. But that they must decide now. And another attitude we must cultivate along with honesty is one of agency. I think it is important for us to tell people to act on the good news they hear and not just wait until a better deal comes along. Some people are proper bargain hunters, aren't they? I was telling you, I went to Costco yesterday. Never been in that shop before. What an amazing shop that is. Proper, proper. It made me want to buy everything. The, the, the kind of buying stuff at wholesale prices I was thinking in my head you know I could buy that and sell that and I, maybe I should open a shop some people are proper bargain hunters and they, they will spend half their lives comparing deals do you do that? you'll get on the internet I wonder if there's another shop that sells it for a five or less than that one and, yeah, bargain hunters nothing wrong with being a bargain hunter the point is you can't do that with Jesus you can't go online somewhere and compare Jesus to something else to see if you'll get a better deal somewhere else. What was it that Jesus himself said? The words that came out of his own mouth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There is no better deal. Jesus said, I am the only way. One of the great things about Christianity is how inclusive and exclusive it is at the same time. Some people would say to Jesus, how very dare you. How can you say you're the only way? What about all the other people? Are you saying they're wrong? Jesus, I think, would politely say, yes, I am the only way. But it is also inclusive in the sense that anyone and everyone is welcome to come to him. Amazing words. Peter says exactly the same thing early in Acts when he's preaching a sermon in Jerusalem. And he says, maybe he's recalling those words of Jesus in Acts chapter 4. He says in verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. He couldn't be clearer than that, could he? Salvation is found in no one else. Jesus, there is no other way to be saved, forgiven, brought into a relationship with God other than to come through Jesus. So here's the deal. If he's the only way, what is there to wait for? 
Jesus too was urgent in his teaching in the Gospels. He warned people to be decisive and not put off responding. There is a sense that we need to think through the implication of the Gospel. We do need to think and to count the cost. But in the end, there is no better deal. And we need to speak to people not just with honesty, but with a sense of agency. Life doesn't go on forever. God gives life. Only he knows when our life will end. The time is short. Our lives in many ways are uncertain. And it's crucial that we respond now and not tomorrow or next week or next year. In relation to Christians, it's interesting that Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he tells them to make the most of every opportunity. One of the things we often find in life, isn't it, is that people are often waiting for the next big thing. Life will be great when I get this job or move to this place or solve this issue. And spiritually, I think, this can sometimes sound like I'll just live another couple of years doing my thing getting my life in order and then when everything's sorted then I'll follow Jesus Paul said no the time is short do it now and I think the challenge for Christians too we can often have that attitude as Christian believers I'll do what Jesus is calling me to do one day when I've sorted everything else out. I think one of the secrets in life is to trust God now. Not to be always seeking something new and thinking we'll do it then. And one of the hardest things in life, I think, is having the right perspective on time, isn't it? Time is one of those things where you've either never got enough or we think it'll last forever. The truth is, time is passing. Days come and go. Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Don't waste your life dreaming about what you're going to do tomorrow. So in evangelism, be honest, yes. And be urgent too. Thirdly, we need to rattle on, don't we? Thirdly, tell people with joy that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but that it will be worth it. If one side of evangelism is being honest about the bad news or the cost as well of being a Christian the other side is not forgetting to talk about the blessings isn't it I always think it's interesting Jesus said to his disciples when he first called them fishermen some of them and he comes to them and he only says two words well, I'm sure he said more than that but what were the two words he said to them follow me in those two words it kind of sums up both sides of this. The following will be hard. For Jesus, it ended on a cross outside the city. Shame. But Jesus doesn't say follow it, or follow that, or follow an ism or an idea. What does he say? He says follow me. And that is the secret, isn't it? Jesus never said to anyone that it would be easy. In fact, when people came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you, Jesus, in a sense, put them off. He actually said to some people, foxes have holes, bears have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head down. If you're going to follow me, your life isn't going to be a walk in the park. 
But the subplot to that is, but you will have me. What do we gain in following Christ? Forgiveness, meaning, purpose, freedom, community, certainty, hope. The Bible is full of stories of people who came to faith and suffered hardship as a result. We even read in the Bible, the Bible tells us that Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. What was it that sustained Jesus to go through such anguish? It was the joy that would come as a result of it. For all the difficulties there can be, there are many, many joys. So, evangelism involves honesty, agency and joy. Uh, fourthly, um, I think it's really important in the subject of evangelism for Christian people to demonstrate what Christianity is with their lives as well as with their words. And I don't mean by that that Christian people are perfect. I don't, that's a, you don't need me to say that. But it should be the case that at least our lives command to other people the gospel that we proclaim. There shouldn't be inconsistency there. And this is true individually and corporately as a church. We have a responsibility to present to the world what it means to be a Christian. God is glorified not just by the words we say, but also by the way that we seek to live. Individually, this means obeying Jesus' words, doesn't it? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you are salt and light in the world. And then he goes on to say, um, let your light shine before other people so that people would glorify your Father in heaven. But corporately, it means understanding being part of what a church family is, doesn't it? But I, I think this is massive, this. I, I'm going to have to have Lib here. And part of the reason for that is I typed some of this up this morning and forgot to save it. So how bad is that? So I'm going to have to just try and remember what I was thinking about this morning. Evangelism is not a lone ranger activity. And you can't isolate evangelism and do it like over here somewhere on your own. Evangelism goes hand in hand with being part of a church family. Being committed to your fellow Christian believers is part of your Christian life and it will impact on how you do evangelism. One of the verses I was thinking about was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We did a series in 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote a letter to Thessalonica, a group of Christians there. When Paul went there to preach the gospel... He was persecuted, he had to leave. And he was very worried that the people he left behind would just disintegrate, go back to all the things were before. And, and years later he finds out that they've, they, they've not drifted away, but they've, they, they've been a genuine church family. And Paul says to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, what, what a joy it is to hear of your faith, but the fact that the gospel rang out from you all, all around that area. Um, 
there's a lovely word. It, it, it's kind of based on the Greek word for echo. It, it, it's almost like Paul saying that the gospel sort of rippled out from you. What did they say of 1 Thessalonians 1? The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. We don't need to say anything about it. It's like when Paul went somewhere and said, have you heard about those people in Thessalonica? He'd go, yeah, we know. We've heard about them. He didn't have to advertise the fact that they'd become Christians because everyone knew that they'd become Christians. We don't need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. These people's lives have been changed and the gospel kind of ripples out from them. They're a, they're a family and the evangelism that they're doing is kind of rippling out from them as a family. The three traits that I've put up on the screen there, honesty, urgency and joy. Let me ask you, as a church family here, do those three words sum up this church family? When people come to this church or engage with this church, and some of you are engaging with it, Maybe this would be a good question to ask you. Would you say this church is summed up by these things? Honesty, agency and joy. What are the opposites of those three traits? Honesty, pretense. Are we a church where we're just pretending? Agency, what's the opposite of that? Apathy. We're a church that kind of just gives the impression really cool. You know, it's kind of whatever will be, will be. Joy, what's the opposite of that? Misery, fed up, depressed. What kind of a church are we? How, how, how can we preach the gospel if we don't show with our lives that the gospel has changed us? If these things are not true of us, the words that we speak will be empty words. We need to be authentic. We need to be having a sense of vitality. And we need to do it not just individually, that's true, but corporately as a church together. How can we expect others to be attracted to Jesus if we lack that reality? How will others want to come to church if we find it a drag? How will others want to know more about Jesus unless they see something in our lives of conviction and truth and reality? I think um, there is a link between your sense of commitment to your church family and whether you're involved in sharing your faith with other people. I have to ask myself that. You need to ask yourself that. Am I really plugged in? Am I just being a long-ranging Christian over here somewhere? Or is my church a place where I'm committed, involved, and together as a church family, we're seeking to share our faith with those around us? The great strategy of Jesus to reach a lost and dying world is the strategy of multiplication. Jesus comes into the world, people believe in him, and then he sends them and says, go 
Tell other people what you now know. And as they go, churches are planted. And as those churches begin to go, there's a ripple effect and the church is multiplied. Is our church having that sense of honesty, agency and joy? And is it multiplying and growing in that sense? That's a real challenge for us, isn't it? Well, we need to wrap on, don't we? What, what, what have we done so far now? Who should do it? All of us. How should we do it? With honesty, agency and with joy. Well, let's ask the question, what is evangelism? When, when teachers are teaching, sometimes they teach by way of contrast, don't they? So I'm going to give you some things that evangelism isn't. And hopefully that will help us to see what it is. So, what is evangelism? Number one, evangelism is not imposing your opinions on other people. That's why people don't like it, isn't it? Why do I say that? Um, first of all, the heart of Christianity is not your opinions or your experience. We've seen that, haven't we? The good news of Christianity is not really about you. The gospel is about certain facts about Jesus, his identity, his mission, his death and resurrection. And these facts are not opinions in the sense that you didn't make them up on your own. It's not like you're trying to say to people, hey, I've discovered this amazing thing. Uh, it, it, it isn't so much you giving your opinions or feelings. In evangelism, what you're doing is not talking about your opinions as much as presenting a story, uh, facts about the Christian gospel. So that, that's an important distinction to make. Um, Sometimes, sometimes I might touch someone and I'll say I'm a Christian and you get the distinct impression that they're, what they're thinking is that's really nice for you. That's really nice for you. I'm so pleased you found something that makes you happy. But that, that isn't evangelism. I might as well be a Buddhist if that's evangelism. That, that's what the issue is. It's not about, I'm not, I don't want to talk to you really about me. What I want to point you to is I want you to think about Jesus. And his claims, his life, death, that's the gospel. So that's important. So I'm not imposing my feelings or opinions on someone else. I just want you to look at him. Secondly, the truth is you can't impose the gospel on anyone. Evangelism is simply presenting information, really. You can't make someone respond to that. You can't make anyone do anything, really, can you? Sometimes we wish we could. But the Bible teaches that any fruit that comes from our evangelism is really down to God himself. When people become real Christians, it isn't because we've been clever or that we had some great passion. It comes from the fact that God himself was at work in their heart. This is really important. Mark Dever, in his book, tells the story of a conversation he had in this country, he's an American man, but he was in this country, and he was having a conversation with a friend who was a Muslim. And they were chatting about Britain and commiserating with one another about what a, what a secular society Britain was becoming. And this Muslim friend, 
he said something about the corruption of this Christian country. And Mark Davis said to him, Britain's not a Christian country. There's no such thing as a Christian country. And this Muslim guy seized on that and said, that's your problem with Christianity. There's no national sense of morality or discipline. There's too much corruption. And there's no doubting his solution was ultimately political. What you need to do in Christianity is you need to enforce morality on people. Well, that's exactly what Islam does, isn't it? Mark Dever pointed out to him, the reason Christianity doesn't promote political programs, the reason that Christianity is not the same as the state, is because it rec- Christianity recognises that the issue is not behaviour, but human nature itself. And he said to his friend, they were friends, he said to his friends, your problem, you've described my problem, your problem with Islam is that it is too shallow. You believe that if people just try hard enough, they can be moral. Christianity teaches that our hearts are far away from God. And that even the good that we do do is steeped in self-interest rather than being genuine. And to make it clear, Mordeva said to this guy, could I put a sword to someone's throat and make them a sufficiently good Muslim? And the Muslim guy reluctantly had to say, yeah, I suppose you could. And that sums it up, doesn't it? You can't do that with Christianity. I can't put a a sword to someone's throat and make them a sufficiently good Christian. Our human nature is too deeply flawed for that. You could pretend, but unless your heart is radically changed, you can't be forced to be a sufficiently good Christian. No, all Christians can do, and all they have done, when they've done it properly, is to present the truth of the gospel and to love people and to pray for them. But we can never make someone else a Christian by imposing something on them. That's not evangelism. Secondly, evangelism is not social action or political involvement. That's not to say that social action and politics is wrong. There's much to be done to right wrongs, to deal with injustice. And there are many people who work to solve global and local problems. But again, here's the issue. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to this. When we lose sight of the fact that the vertical dimension is the most important dimension, your individual relationship with your creator is the most important thing. When we lose sight of that, the thing that will occupy us more than anything else is all the horizontal problems we see. The big issue according to the Bible is our relationship with God. And evangelism is not so much dealing with the horizontal politically to change society for the better, although that may be a fruit of the gospel making progress. Evangelism really is confronting people with the truth of the gospel. Actually, when you think about it, you think of all the places in the world where the Bible has been read openly. 
where Christianity has flourished. And you think about the kind of nations where that's happened. Generally speaking, generally speaking, those have not been the countries where oppression has been rife. Those are the countries where there's been freedom. That isn't to say that it's a Christian country or that everyone in that country is a Christian. But generally speaking, where the Bible has flourished, the country has been free. Where the Bible is put to one side, it isn't long, history shows, it isn't long before the country becomes oppressive. Marriages, families, societies can and will change as God changes people's hearts and draws them together into church families who can then influence their culture for good. Thirdly, uh, evangelism is not apologetics. That doesn't, I'm not talking about saying sorry there. Apologetics is the art or the process of answering questions about objections and defending uh, Christianity. So apologetics would include talking about the reliability of the Bible documents or the evidence for the resurrection. Um, in a way, apologetics is defending the faith it's important, answering questions. Many of our conversations with people include apologetics-style conversations. But it's not evangelism. Apologetics is maybe a defence of the faith. Evangelism is the positive act of sharing the good news about Jesus. Um, fourthly, evangelism is not inviting people to events. We, we run a lot of events in this church, don't we? And they're great. And events where the gospel message is talked about, proclaimed, are important and crucial. But don't confuse inviting people to events with evangelism itself. You may be a bringer. And if you are, that's great. But I want to challenge you not just to be a bringer, but to do the work of an evangelist. Do you talk about Jesus with your friends? Are you telling them not just what's going on, but are you actually talking about the gospel itself? It's more of a challenge, isn't it? Are you just a bringer, or are you talking about Jesus too? Evangelism is proclaiming the message, talking about Jesus. I want to say one last thing about this, which is a bit subtle. Evangelism is not the same as the results of evangelism. What do I mean by that? Well, some people confuse evangelism with the results of evangelism in this way. What is evangelism? Evangelism is people becoming Christians. Some people might say to evangelize is to win converts. But it isn't, really. Evangelism is not to be confused with the fruits of evangelism. Evangelism is simply telling the good news. The results for that are with God. Jesus told a parable, didn't he, of a sower. He went out with a little bag, sowing seed. Didn't have machines in those days. Jesus said, some seed fell on the path. Birds came and ate it. Some seed fell on rocky ground. Some seed fell among thorns and thistles. Some seed fell on good ground. And it reaped a crop. Our job, in a way, is to sow seed, isn't it? 
But whether things take root and grow, we can't make that happen. Only God can do that. You can't judge evangelism by the immediate results of it. William Carey was a missionary, went to India, didn't see a convert for about seven years. How would he carry on if he thought evangelism was winning converts? He just wanted to be faithful in proclaiming the message. Some Christian people can feel, I must be doing something wrong if there's no fruit. But evangelism isn't, it's not really about how good we are at it. It is really about whether we're being faithful in proclaiming the message. Think about how you became a Christian. Maybe it was through someone who was a bit scared. (laughs) Or stumbling. Or even intimidated. But somehow, in the midst of all their mixed upness, the truth of the gospel broke through and you got something of the truth of the gospel, despite their frailty. Obviously, as Christians, we're not uh, trying to be rude. But my point is that God is a big God. He can use people, even sometimes our mistakes, to bring glory to him. Just listen to this quote. Evangelism is not the making of proselytes. It is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It's not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying Jesus saves. Some of those things are right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners, to warn people of their lost condition and to direct them to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus. Evangelism is not a manipulative, coercive thing. It is presenting the truth and calling people to respond to it. Why do I say all that? Well, I I think when you begin to see that evangelism is not converting people, but telling them the good news, perhaps you can see that rather than being a guilt-induced burden, it actually is a huge joy and privilege. Uh, Carl read to us earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And um, in, in these little talks, we're not really sort of expounding a Bible passage, we're thinking more thematically, but if there was a passage that I wanted us to think about, it was this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says exactly this he, he talks about what he does and then he talks about what God does and listen to his words he says we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God on the contrary by setting forth the truth plainly we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. What's Paul saying there? What Paul's saying is, listen, I'm not a second-hand car salesman. My job is to present to you what Jesus told me to tell you. Jesus died for sinners. You must repent and believe in him. And what does God do? God turns the light on in people's hearts so that they can receive such a message. Paul's job was to be faithful. He even says, we preach Jesus, not us, and we are, we are your servants. He's not trying to build an empire. He just wants to tell the truth about Jesus he had no need to be manipulative or deceitful his sole aim was to be clear and simple and truthful it cost him a great deal of opposition and difficulty but by God's grace people were saved churches were planted and the gospel rippled out around the whole of the Mediterranean What is evangelism then? Well, it is simply presenting the truth about Jesus. Very quickly, my last point is why. Why do we do evangelism? It is possible that some people might do evangelism to win an argument or to keep the church open or to fulfil some need in themselves. Biblically, there are three reasons behind evangelism. Obedience, Jesus said, go and make disciples. So if we're going to do evangelism, we do it because Jesus tells us to do it. The second reason is love for people. If we truly believe what we say we believe, we will have a heart and a care for people who don't know Jesus. People who are heading for an eternity separate from God. That doesn't mean we'll be obnoxious or difficult or rude, but we will have a heart for people. And the third reason is really a love for God. Ultimately, evangelism is really about God's glory, isn't it? The call to evangelism is a call to go out of ourselves, to see that life isn't just about me. Life actually centres in God. We're called to love him and his glory and to love other people too. One day Mark Dever was preaching in his church. There's quite a lot of people in his church. Capitol Hill in Washington. And uh, he preached his sermon, his talk, whatever. And someone came to him afterwards and said, that was a brilliant sales presentation. 
but I've just got one word of advice for you. You never close the deal. I never stood back a bit. What do you mean I never closed the deal? He said, you just, you gave the sales patter, but you never closed the deal. Mark Dever thought about that deeply. And this is what Mark Dever said. I don't preach the gospel using all my power while God stands back like a gentleman waiting for the sinner to respond. I preach the gospel like a gentleman while God exerts all his power to convert the sinner. That's a, that's a radically different approach, isn't it? I don't need to manipulate people. I don't need to kind of shout and bawl and kind of whip up an atmosphere. I preach like a gentleman while God exerts all his power. Who gets the glory then? Not Mark Dever, but God. Evangelism is not getting people to say yes or sign a card. It is presenting the good news of Jesus and trusting God to radically change people's hearts. Well, we're, we're done really. What, what have we learned? Who should do evangelism? All of us. How should we do it? With honesty, urgency, and with joy. How do we do it? We present the message and we rely on God to give the fruit. And I think we've also learned something that church is important in this regard. We'll think about this more next week, church. But your commitment to a local church as a Christian believer is crucial if you're going to be involved in evangelism.